and welcome to the Department of Metal Antiquities. Well, we remember what everyone else has forgotten. As always, it is Nick Cameron of Glacially Musical, joined by my good friend and musical... Oh, crap. Um, <laughs> it was bound to go wrong one of these days. The last couple have been so perfect, you know? Um, yeah, I, I mean, the last one was so perfect, I consider just that being the thing. But, yeah. I, but I feel that's very off-brand for me. So uh, yeah. my good friend Duncan Evans, a musical wonder man from Leeds United, or Leeds UK, excuse me. Leeds United is the football team up Leeds there. Leeds United is the football team. Yes, I'm not massively into my football. I like the fact you said football, though, because you guys would say soccer normally. So I you don't were, know. I, I don't even know. Actually, I do know why I did. There's a TV show here called Welcome to Wrexham, which okay. is about, uh, yeah, which is about uh, Ryan Reynolds of Deadpool fame and Rob McElhaney of oh, Always right. Sunny in Philadelphia fame. They purchased Wrexham AFC. Okay, right. So in order to make it more solvent and to raise the level of the club, they also did a deal to do a documentary series on it. Uh, And I've been watching that and the entire time they've been calling it football. Yeah. See, over here, we we do say soccer as well sometimes, but... Soccer is actually an English phrase. It's an English term. It's not an American term. It came from rugby union and rugby... or Football union and football association. Rugby right. and soccer. So soccer came from A-S-S-O-C. There you go. You know more about it than me, man. But um, yeah. Oh, and Leeds lost today. So I'm sorry, but Arsenal won. Yay. Anyway. Uh, well, uh, there you go. <laughs> let me address the elephant in the room if I sound funny this week. Guess what? I got COVID again. I am through the worst of it. I have been through the worst of it. And I am feeling like myself. I felt um, I felt about 85% perfect yesterday. I am feeling about 90% today. I'm a little fuzzy and congested still, but the congestion just means that my body is forcing everything out. So exactly. if if That's I make good, a good gross on the mend. if I make a gross noise, I'm sorry. I will do my best to uh, I'm sure we both make many gross noises on the I'm sure the whole podcast is just one big gross noise to some people. So, you know, I wouldn't worry too much, man. Uh, Uh, I've also got my box of Kleenex, so I'm ready to go there. (laughs) Um, And speaking of gross noises that maybe should or should not have happened. What are we talking about today? All right. Well, everyone knows Tori Amos, right? So um, 90s star, obviously carried on, still releasing albums um, today. Um, But her first album, of course, is Little Earthquakes from 1992. Which we have on vinyl that I bought for my wife. My wife is a huge fan of Tori Amos. In fact, we have been fighting over the Tori Amos picture she wants to hang in this room. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm I'm a fan as well. I'm not an uber fan. I, in fact, in fact, I don't have Little Earthquakes. I really need to get it. But I have probably four or five albums, and I really like them a lot. So, yeah, I really appreciate Tori Amos and what she does. Um, Boys for Pele is probably the one I know the the most. Absolutely um, brilliant. Very sad um, album, but uh, but wonderful album. Um, but anyway, so of course, her first album is 1992's Little Earthquakes, isn't it, Nick? No, it is not. I was muted. So, uh, no, it is not. Actually, it goes back a little bit earlier. Tori Amos's musical career started in 1982 with a band called Why Can't Tori Read, which is an anecd- which is an allusion to the fact that she was asked to leave the Peabody Conservatory because she wouldn't read the sheet music. I don't yeah. know if she couldn't. I assume she can read sheet music. I've never met a piano player who couldn't read yeah, sheet piano music. players generally can that's how they usually learn but i don't know if she can so now the question i think everybody is asking is why in the hell are we doing tori amos i'm not even a fan of the woman i don't i don't like her um my wife loves her so it's fine but you know the reason why we are doing this one today is because it features Matt Sorum later of Guns N' Roses. Indeed, yeah. And I, I'm, it glitched out for a little while there, then it redeemed itself. So I'm hoping it was all, I'm sure the recording will be will be great. And if it goes, rah, 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 then it's just all part of the, uh, part of the shtick. The anyway, magic. So, exactly. So, okay. 
So I don't know if you said this already, but the album title is spelled in is intentionally spelled incorrectly, as though it's somebody who not only can't read but can't spell. So it's spelled Y as in letter Y, can't as in K A N T. Tory Reed, and I didn't realize that this this was a band. So this is not Tory Amos's sort of long lost first solo album as such. It was actually a band called Why Can't Tory Reed, who did one album in 1988. You've probably just said this, and it was glitching out while you said 86. It. Actually, 88 is the album, I believe. That's what I it says. Hang on. Comedian. Well, then, yeah, I'm rem- then I'm remembering. It says um, recorded 87, released 88. So unless oh. they went back in time, Nick, they recorded it 87 and then it was well. the um, But I, I did put an Instagram post out today incorrectly stating that it was 84. So, you know, we would whatever. Um, <laughs> I am actually looking at the picture of the band and I'm yeah. trying to find Matt Sorum. Oh, he's the big, tall guy that looks like Matt Sorum. Um, I can't find one. This, picture I can't think. find one that looks like. I can't find one that looks like him. Well, there's, wow. a, there's a black and white photo yeah, that I've yeah. seen, and it's like he's he's just the, the big tall guy with the the, the, the big Matt Sorum. I think he looks kind of like Matt Sorum. He's just not he's not dressing in quite in quite as rocky a way. As oh, okay, I see it now because the the yeah. it's it's captioned. So yeah, yeah, okay, I, fi- I figured it out. But yeah, this is I thought this was a hair metal record being as it comes from Los Angeles in the mid 80s, it turns out it's more of a synth pop glam record for lack of a better yeah, term. I don't, know if, I don't know about glam, but c- certainly synth pop. And yeah, I mean, c- the album cover is quite glamish and, and actually could have suggested almost quasi hair metal. Like she's looking very 80s um, there. I mean, it, it was the 80s clearly, but she's got a sword She's got those big, long, like velvet gloves that were popular in the eighties. She looks like um, she looks like an eighties pop star or potentially eighties kind of rock rock star type of uh, type of person. So yeah, I, I could see that it could have been hair metal. Um, the fact that she's holding a sword. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of a um, what do you call it? Uh, what do you call it? A, a, a scimitar? It's, a it's not a. Cutlass, that's the one I'm looking for. Yeah, exactly that. Um, yeah, and there's a, some, some little cartoons as well. There's a cartoon drawing at the side of a woman, I suppose, potentially meant to be Tori Amos, and then on the other side of a dragon. And it looks as though the, the, the Tori Amos cartoon, who also has the sword, the Cutlass, is kind of chasing away the dragon so they're they're kind of presenting her as a uh a, a fantasy hero almost right so i looked at this and i thought okay you know and i read somewhere that it was hair glam synth sure. which Fair. so Fair. that was why this ends up on the list and then matt sorum being involved solidifies it as a as a legitimate exhibit in the department of metal antiquities in my opinion because now we have our very first Guns N' Roses content. Indeed, We've not done anything with them. So, I'm trying to think where we should go from here. Do you have anything else you want well, to say? Look, well, I'm, the only thing I'm going to say is this. I think, okay, nowadays, certainly in metal and alternative music, not in pop, but in metal and alternative music, it is the norm for bands and artists to sometimes form in their 40s, even 50s, definitely 30s. And you can still become a big band on the scene. It's not so much of an issue how old you are. You don't, it's not like you hit 25 and you're over the hill. Okay, in pop music, maybe it still is a bit like that. But um, but but you know, back in the 80s, I think it was very much like that in in general. Um yes. But Tori Amos does not fit that mold. So I, I think this is what, when I first heard about this, it surprised me because I think of Tori Amos or certainly thought, well, she, I think most people think of her as a 90s artist, really. That was when she was at her peak of popularity and releasing all her classic albums, really. I would even uh, consider her to be one of the generational voices of the 90s. Yeah. There she you is, go. You know, she was massive in a way that unfortunately is not commercially enriching, but massive in a way where she just was 
everywhere. She yeah. had invaded so many places. She even did a Slayer cover of Raining yeah, Blood. Us, that cover's album is brilliant. Um, there's Nirvana on there, Smells Like Teen Spirit, and completely reimagined. You've heard that song way too many times, but check her version out if you don't know it. It's beautiful. Um, but yeah, but the thing is, she was born in 1963. So by the time she was, so when she released her first actual solo album, Little Earthquakes, she was 29. And by the time she was really rising to that big popularity, she was well into her 30s. And um, so when I heard she'd done an 80s, an album in the 80s and formed this band in the early 80s, I thought, 82. Like, was she 10 or something? But of course, <laughs> no, it's just that she was a bit older than you kind of imagine that she would be. Just just by the sheer fact that at the time, most big artists um, got big when they were in probably their early to mid 20s, um, sometimes even earlier than that. Yeah. Um, whereas she, yeah, she, she wasn't. She'd already had a go, if you like, a few years earlier when she was in her 20s and then it didn't quite work out and then she reworked the whole thing and then 29 into her 30s then that's when she really hit a stride and and became popular so so yeah uh, she formed the band when she was um like 19 and yeah then really 19 this when she was um whatever it works out as about 26 i think 20 yeah. 25 26 yeah so, so it, it's it's a really great point you have just made there that you know, if you hadn't been signed and gotten your first gold record by age 25 in the 80s, you were done. You know, yeah. the the one exception to that, the exception that proves that rule, I think, would be Twisted Sister. Who yeah. got signed 10 years into their career, more or less. But there's a few exceptions. The other one is, um, what's she, what's she, um, oh, girls just want to have fun. What's what's she called? Cindy Lauper. Yeah, and she was like when you looked, she was she was like in her thirties, I believe, when she was. Oh, doing, I didn't know that. Yeah, so there's a, there are a few exceptions, but yeah, generally, very much the rule that you were, yeah, past your early twenties, you're old type of thing. It's, um, yeah, it's very interesting to find out that she was, I wouldn't say much older, but noticeably older than probably we all assumed back in 1995 when. Did she have a song called Pink or am I Under the Pink was the album and I think the okay. song of the same name on it. But yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, when when that was big and yeah. you know, we get this very diminutive, almost pixie like artist in that time. You know, very she's very small, her voice is very not forceful. I guess I mean it's it's just a diminutive voice that works really well for what she's conveying. Yeah. I think it can. I think it can be forceful, but I think she's she's often, especially as she went on, sings very high in that head voice. It's a very, very, yeah, that that high pitched voice. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. I know so now saying. the question I think becomes: We move the conversation on to why is this album forgotten? Yeah. Well. Okay. So basically. This is one of those where, so some of the albums that we've looked at are forgotten because they were released sort of on some tiny record label before the band had really been properly noticed. And then they went on to get noticed by a bigger label or whatever. This is kind of all, all skew with and the other way around. This was released on Atlantic. So at some point, um, why can't Tory Reid got signed by Atlantic? And of course, on one of these big labels when you're a band that hasn't released anything before that's completely unknown i presume they haven't done a whole lot of shows i don't know they might have done some small scale tours or whatever in the years preceding but what happens is they don't want you to have too much control and they want to be safe and they want to make you a big star and they want they think they know how to do that. And so, what happens if it all goes wrong? Well, exactly. So I think there's some of that going on here. I don't know absolutely fully, but they get in this guy, um, Joe Chicharelli. Chicarelli. I'm not sure oh, how you I did say not it. look at his name. Let me take a look. So he is he is the sole producer of this band. He's done uh, Morrissey Oingo Boingo. The Shins, Counting Crow, he's done Elton John, U2. He's done a lot of big, big bands. I don't know whether he did any later El um, Tori Amos stuff. He definitely did not. I would be surprised in. if yeah. he did. I, I, I would, would I would pronounce his name as 
Chisharelli, and one of the things I love about English people, and I noticed this today when I was watching the soccer match, yeah. how the English people do not try to pronounce names correctly or accurately like we do over here. You they mean just... like Italian? This sounds like an Italian name. Right. You, yeah, and we in just England, don't We're just like, Chicarelli. Right. Chicarelli. I love that. Because, like, I'm, I'm, watching, I'm watching the Arsenal match. And there's a player, I don't know his first name, but his last name is Jesus. And they just kept calling him Jesus. Jesus. They just yeah, kept yeah. calling him Jesus. And right. Jesus. I, and I wasn't sure if they were throwing the G in there, too. <laughs> right. Right, anyway, right. Sorry, sorry, sorry. No, it's all good. Jesus so, is Jesus on the pitch. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's he, uh, so this when you know, I remember reading in the 90s, and I mean I've told this story a thousand, I've told this a thousand times, but I'll tell it again because we've probably we've probably got some Tori Amos listeners here today. In 1965, if you put out a record and it on Electra Records or Columbia Records. And it failed. They went, huh, we did something wrong. It's our fault, not the artist's fault. Let's do it. Let's do another one. And they would give you three or four, yeah. uh, five or six. Sometimes we did Thin Lizzy and Thin Lizzy didn't break till their seventh record. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. then you get to the 70, you get four or five, you get to the 80s. And maybe you get one. And yeah, I think it just started to get more brutal on the on the bigger labels, on the smaller labels. Correct, you know, and it's totally different. But yeah, the bigger labels, they were just like, look, we we think, we, look, we know what we're doing now. This industry has been like it's been for sort of 20, 25 years. You know, we've risen to these heights. We know who the stars are. We know who the stars aren't. Look, we'll give you one try, and if you're not a star, if it doesn't sell, eh, you're out. Just totally brutal. Right, it's not our fault. It's yours. And so basically it became sell 350,000 copies mm-hmm. or get out. And yeah. so how much time do you think the label spent promoting this record? I reckon not a whole lot. They only did one music video, for example. Um, they did two. There were two videos. Uh, and I, th- I think I said there were two singles, but only one had a video. Um, I saw a mere phrase. I saw two videos today. Oh, fine, fine, fine. But it occurs to me. It occurs to me as I say that perhaps the label didn't do that, and a well, fan did that later. I wasn't yeah, paying yeah, too close attention. That might be what it is because it's. I think it said there was only one, but but um, but in yeah, the video look, that they did do that we can agree on. Yeah, that that happened and existed. Seen. I have yep. seen it twice. Okay. It is uh, for the single Big Picture. Mm-hmm. The only member of Why Can't Tori Read who's in the video is Tori. Right. So they didn't spend a lot of money on that particularly. Oh, that's because by the point they made this, they had already instructed her to dismiss the entire band. Okay. Wow. So they would stay really were controlling it. And then on top of that, two months into the promotion of the album, they pulled all support. There you go. Well, two check months. Exactly. It's nothing. Well, check out this story. It is now. It became a collector's item because it became rare. It's actually now been reissued. We'll talk about that in a minute. But became a massive collector's item. Was selling for hundreds of pounds or hundreds of dollars at the height of Tory's fame. And it's actually more... The, the, the non-promo copies go for more than the promo copies. And that is normally the other way around. And the reason for that is basically they recalled so many of the copies that had gone out to distributors and stores that there are actually more promotional copies out there in the world of the original issue than there are actual uh, commercial copies. Holy hell. That is a piece of information. I did not know that. <laughs> so, yeah, it went wrong. The whole thing flopped. Both the singles flopped. Um, the whole thing just did not work. Um, I don't know exactly what the sales are here. I'm trying to look, but it just... Eight, it, nine? What, I, I, just eight, eight or nine. <laughs> <whatever>. <laughs> <laughs> like, what, thousand? No, eight or nine. <laughs> <laughs> eight to nine. Okay, I mean, I've had records that have sold eight and nine, so you know, I know the feeling. But um, no, I don't think I have quite. I don't think it's ever been quite that low. But um, um, yeah, okay. But look, basically, it didn't sell anywhere near what they wanted it to sell. Um, clearly, at first, they were behind it because do you know who's on this record? No, 
because there's four members of the band. Okay, one guy I've forgotten his name who went on to become Tori Amos's long-term uh, sort of side person right well into the nineties until ninety-nine. I've forgotten his name now, but he, he was not famous at the time. I don't think any of them were. I don't think Matt Sorum had really done a whole lot of the time. I was going to point that out. None of these people were famous. Yeah. But however, right. On the credits here, and it just says here, personnel, this is on Wikipedia, credits are adapted from the liner notes. Okay, check this out. You've got Rick Nielsen. What? Yep. You've also got Robin Zander, also of Cheap Trick. Seriously? Yep. You've got the Valentine Brothers, who are some recording act from the late 70s and 80s that had massive hits. Money's too tight to mention. Um, all this. Um, you've got Mary Clayton, who is American soul and gospel singer, sang with the Stones. The, oh, the, she sang on Gimme Shelter by the Stones. There you go. You've got a load of other names that you can't click the links, but I'm sure they're session musicians that have done stuff with um, a lot of the big people. Then you've got Tim Landers on fretless bass guitar, who's played with Aldi Miola, Billy Cobham, Gil Evans. So he's he's a top, top session guy. You've got another bass player, Fernando Saunders, who's played with loads and loads with Lou Reed. Um, so this guy, uh, Paulino da Costa, who, um, let's have a look, Brazilian percussionist, um, considered one of the most recorded musicians of modern times. So they really, really paid a lot to get these absolutely top of their game um luminaries on the on the record i don't Ooh. know what they all did specifically well there's a really kick-ass guitar solo in the early stages of the record yeah which i would probably have to believe now knowing what i know and how there aren't very many of them that yeah. was probably rick nielsen yeah exactly rick nielsen for i i think his look overshadows his quality a little bit yeah I yep. don't think people realize how good of a guitar player he really is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they 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 threw in some bucks. I yep. mean, they really went for this. Now, considering they have what is it, an extra ten to fifteen people that you just threw out. Well, yeah, which shows how much they were trying to control it. Like, okay, you've got your band, you've got your band, but you know, we're going to bring nineteen other people in who are <clears throat> going to play all the important parts. And you know, but sorry, you were in the middle of a sentence there. No, I mean that's exactly it. You, I mean, that's the point I was trying to make. Thank you for stealing my thunder. I didn't need it. <laughs> Again. I didn't need it anyway. But <laughs> so, how much did the band even play? Exactly. I imagine Matt Sorum did because the drums sound, they have that big Matt Sorum sort of sound and I don't think there's another drummer. But yeah, look, you've got, they brought a bass player. I, don't, I presume Brad Cobb was the bass player. I'm looking at the band members yeah, now. Yeah. They brought two other bass players in. So did Brad Cobb even play anything on it? Um, Steve, is, there, is there even a guitar player in the band? Yeah, Steve Catton or Caton who became... Okay who carried on with Tori Amos well. Oh, she, he is the one, he is the only one that was not dismissed. Exactly. He, he yeah, exactly that. Yeah, she jettisoned, says to you, look, I'm unable to withstand pressure from Atlantic Records. She had jettisoned the rest of them before recording the music video, with the exception of Steve Catton. Um, but yeah, they just wanted to control the whole thing. And there's so many... Um, stories of this type of thing happening i mean even on um say dire straits and brothers in arms uh i'm sure dire straits would have been established enough that they must have had some choice about this but you know it's not um i've forgotten the drummer's name but it isn't the dire straits drummer on most of that album it's mostly um oh god what's the guy called omar hakim who's one of these top session drummers he plays just all over that album um and uh, I, I think the story goes that the Dire Straits drummer only plays, you know, in um, Money for Nothing, that... Ding -ding -ding, yeah. ding -ding -ding, that's the only thing, the legend has it, that he actually played. Well, so, there, I mean, there's all, kinds of, lot, all kinds of stories that I think we could probably yes. tell about people not playing and things. But I, I just actually took a look, and there are on Discogs presently 73 copies of this album for sale. Yep. 12 are CD, 51 are vinyl. So... Even though it was released in the cassette era, at yeah. the beginning of it wasn't even released on cassette that I can even see. And 
the let me take a look here. It, it was re-released in 2017. Correct. Finally, for record store day, it was released on Rhino Records. I think CD and definitely vinyl. Yeah, uh, there. I yeah, it was a uh, vinyl. Was the CD is a re? I mean, obviously that's a re-release, but it um, it it yeah. I mean, I'm looking here. <laughs> At this and it's you can it's always there's eleven versions total released. Let's I think see. it was originally released on CD as a long box. You know about long box. Oh it's yeah, yeah, yeah. This, um, yeah, the, the, so that you can put a CD in the uh, vinyl. It was section. oh, there is a bootleg version of it that was released in ninety nine. So what? How do the prices uh, stack up on? Uh... Oh, Atlantic. Oh nope, that's. That's a bootleg too. Bootleg, bootleg. Yeah, it was not released on cassette in the cassette era. It was not released on CD until 2017. So there are only three oh, wow. official versions of this album. So there wasn't and, even. A, so the long box version might be. I've read something about that, but maybe that was a bootleg. I don't know. It, that's a bootleg. It does not right. show on. Right. Right. Uh, but the the the. The conversation for the LP, the original LP, starts at about seventy dollars. Wow! There you and go. consider this is released in nineteen eighty eight, and in nineteen eighty eight is when cassettes are the dominant format. Yes, and CDs Absolutely. are coming in. However, they only released it on vinyl. That, yep. I mean, think about that for a second. Then this is, for lack of a better term, this is kids' music. This is music for the people that have already moved on to the next format. The people that are listening to music on their Walkman. Mm. Yeah, mm. It's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, so I yeah. grew up in this era, and we, uh, you know, myself, my cousins, and I, we switched to cassettes in 1983. Yeah, well, I remember when I was a young kid, cassettes just seemed like the thing. There were these, there were these old things around called records that were vinyls that we didn't really play cassettes were everywhere and then there were these wacko new things that were like a small version of a record that was made of plastic and had was shiny and we like they were cds you know um correct and yeah i I was yeah i remember that era basically so basically they're they're trying to sell this music to children on the format that their parents used. Yeah. So I don't quite understand that. So unless they'd already withdrawn support before they even released the thing, which it all seems a bit strange. That. And it's also <laughs> worth mentioning, you know, because I have uh, I have Guar's Hello from 1988-ish. Mm-hmm. I have Ace Fraley's Trouble Walking from 1989. I have DRI's uh, Four of a Kind from 89 or 90, that era. And in yep. that 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 is like the last gasp of major label uh, support of vinyl. And if you go back and you look at those records, those vinyl pressings only got one run. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Which makes this whole thing even nuttier. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, yeah, so I think the only other thing that I've got um, in terms of the background is that... um, Tori Amos herself, it says here, had effectively disowned the album for many years. Um, but Chisharelli has said that she was very happy with it at the time. And Chisharelli <laughs> says she had a very strong vision of what she wanted to do on her first album. So even though he was producing and she wasn't co-producing, it sounds like, sorry, I'm not quoting anymore. This is me. It sounds like she wanted to be involved and she had that drive and she kind of knew that she she knew what she wanted. Um, which does make me wonder how much of how much of the final sound was the producer and how much of it was actually that Tori Amos didn't know what she wanted to be yet. Um, well, my first question is, what instrument does she play on this album? Well, mostly vocals. I believe that there's some piano that sounds like her, but there's not a whole lot, but there is. She, she is credited as keyboards in the band. There you go. I was going to say, it sounds too much like her. It's now, much how much keyboard is on this record? Depends how much piano? Think. How much well, piano? piano? No, very little. Very little. Yeah, so that, very little. That, that answers my question about who was in the driver's seat and who was. I get what you're saying. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Um, yeah, I think she was probably 
trying to have a say, but within parameters that she might have agreed, but which probably weren't her idea. She was probably told, look, it's got to be like this. This, this is, is what it can be. Look, it's, but it's, within that, you know, fine, you can have right. your say on something. Well, and, and she wrote the songs. She wrote the songs, actually. Yeah, and, that's the tale as old as time. Yeah, totally. Do what we say now, become a success, and then you can do what you want next Yeah, record. yeah. Which, in a strange way, is what ended up happening, but not in the way that was planned. Um, Correct. Look, she actually, I was just going to say about the songwriting, she had some help with some of the songs. She So there's like five or six songs that are completely written by Tori Amos. Um, there's Kim Bullard, um, who is one of these professional songwriters who's written stuff for Elton John. Um, oh, hang on, no, performed extensively as a keyboard player with people like Elton John, sorry, but is a songwriter. I'm... I'm I don't know which songs he's written, but I'm sh- I've no doubt that he's written some uh, big hits. Um, so he co-wrote three songs and then Brad Cobb, who I think is the bass player, co-wrote one. And then she wrote the other five herself. So she she wrote most of this album. Um, the, she, she was involved. There is no track that doesn't have her involvement on it. And more than 50 percent are just her. So... Um, yeah. So, but but I guess those arrangements were probably largely the producers. Uh, Correct. I, I think what had happened was she writes the backbone. They call and they do. She writes the the outline and they do the colors. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Yeah. And I think with that, it in terms of the background, it's all over about the shouting. Let's take a quick break and get back for track by track. See you shortly. <clears throat> and thanks for holding on for us. We are back and ready to get into the track by track. All right. Am I going to start us off then, Nick? Um, oh, yeah, that's that's the whole usual fashion. Actually, I'll start this one off because I remember this song really, really well. Go on, then. I have listened to this song probably about 10 times um, when doing a preview on this to see if we wanted to do it, all that kind of good stuff. So and I think a large portion of what I'm going to say in this entire record is going to be focused on what I took away from this song and let me start off with it's not a bad tune the video is messed up so the lyrics start off with uh somebody broke into my brand new car saw my boyfriend looking at some other slander blah 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 whatever so the video starts off with tori at her car which is not a brand new one i'm gonna point out in the video but an old beaten down look like a Datsun, because the label spared no expense on this video (laughs) <laughs> and looks like a Datsun that she's living an old like blue Datsun that would look at home in an, on a European road in Germany in 1987 and East Germany in 1987. <clears throat> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So okay. cop walks up to her and says, I'm writing you a ticket, but somebody just broke into my car and stole my stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, you're illegally parked, ma'am, so I'm writing you a ticket. But somebody stole my underwear. That's messed up. And I'm like, what? So this is dialogue that you hear that's not on the actual normal right. recording. In the 80s, they would have like a 30-second scene before a song. Yeah, no, I've seen it. And they, they do even bigger ones now sometimes. But right, okay, so they did one of those on this. Okay. And it was just like, what in the world? Yeah. And then in comes the synthy drums and Tori is singing big and having a great time. And I don't really know what's going on in this song. Uh, I, 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 I think it's kind of like a self-empowerment song, which is something that actually comes, comes on much bigger in her later on in her career. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, look, yeah, so this is obviously one of the two singles, which is track one and two. Um so straight away, this is clearly synth pop. It's very, very 80s. It sounds a lot like Depeche Mode. You've got those kind of do 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 synths going on. Um, great vocals. Love the vocals. I've always liked her voice. Very emotive, very varied, emotionally charged. Um, you know, it's, it, it feels like she's feeling every word and the emotion behind it as she delivers it. And that's, uh, you know, it's, it's brilliant. She obviously had that already right back then. However, um, I would but, say she's singing in a different delivery here. She's yeah, singing in a, so in a I, very eighties kind of, kind of way. Well, you know what? 
I do know what you mean. I think it's a little bit different, but I, I think that it's mainly everything else that makes it sound so 80s. Um, but, but yeah, I think there is a bit of a bit of difference in her voice. But look, it's super catchy. And oh, really yeah. well written, really well put together, brilliant arrangements. But this is, it is pretty damn cheesy. This is right for me. It's right on the borderline between cool 80s and terrible 80s. Well, it's like... <laughs> I'm going to jump in on that because you're absolutely right. You have nailed it. Yeah. And as we discussed ad nauseum earlier, because I got the dates wrong, this comes out in 1988. Mm. And this basically sounds like a real live version of Jem. Did you ever get Jem over there? I don't know what that is. No, no idea. Jem was a cartoon about right. a rock group who were based off of holograms. Okay, right. Where the lead singer had, it was like a Hannah Montana style thing. Yeah, yeah. Where she was the owner of a, a an orphanage for wayward teen girls, and her father was the the owner of a, a co-owner of a record label, and then it gets into weird, crazy antics, and basically it's 80s synth pop. This show started in like 85 or 86. Right, right. right. Which, if you do the math on that, was probably missed the window. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And here we are in 1988. Yeah, this is the thing. It feels like they're going for that new, you know, inverted commas, parentheses, new 80s sound. But this is a this is like four years too late for it to be the new thing. Um, and eras back in those days moved. Yeah, much quicker, quicker, much quicker, much quicker. It's so glossy. I mean, look, it's really nice in a lot of ways. Just as a producer and as a sound engineer, this is a great record to listen to. Um, it's so crystal clear. It's so crisp. Some really nice subtle delay effects on the vocals. Um, but it's just so, so, so 80s. It's like the most, it's more 80s than any it, it's like it's been done after the 80s as a parody of what it was like in the 80s um you know um yeah. but look there's some great vocal harmonies the chorus is so good i think it's a brilliant song and i think look tori amos's delivery and to some extent the depth of the song itself i don't think it's as deep as her later songs but the depth of the song itself to some extent makes it all right Look, it's really sugary 80s production. This is, it could be terrible, but she kind of just drags it out of that by being Tori Amos, basically. Yeah, and I mean, the only question, just, she only, only just, just. <laughs> only just. Yeah. The question, I, I mean, if it's anybody besides Tori Amos singing this, mm. this song is kind of garbage. Mm -hmm. Because yeah, I, mean, I mean, I would say the actual, look, the actual chorus and stuff is still really well written. But yes, I know what you're saying. I'm, I'm with you. All right, let's get on to track two. All right, this is called Cool on Your Island. Um, oh, my God. So Apparently, she's played this one and some others, which I've, I've taken some notes on some of these in later years. And I'd love to hear those versions um, played with a different type of band and possibly completely solo, because she does some band shows, some totally solo ones, as far as I understand. Never seen her, would like to. But anyway, another single. This one's a bit more brooding and moody. It's like a synth rock ballad it is so cheesetastic in so many ways unfortunately you've got these dire straits guitars but over the top glossy polished dire straits guitars you've got synth strings and oh no you've got that fretless bass sound you know the one i mean that chorus chorus fretless bass sound on top of interestingly the ferris bueller's day off bass solo right right well with my producer hat on and the ranger hat on, I find it really interesting that there's they've got the fretless bass sound, but then on top of that, there's another sub bass, which I don't know if it's real or a synth. That it's was so, a synth. So bassy, but it's like there's two basses going on here, which that's unusual and it's cool and interesting just from a technical sort of um, arrangement point of view. But that fretless bass sound, oh man, it has not aged well. It must have seemed so cool at the time. Wow, well, to some people, I, I don't know if it did. <laughs> Bearing Duncan in mind, is, is, Duncan is very on record. 
Yeah. I mean, it's it's a strange one, isn't it? Because we're saying these things. Well, it must have seemed, seemed so cool at the time. But this is this is a year after Guns N' Roses, his first record. The, the band that Matt Sorum went on to join had already released Appetite for Destruction like a year earlier. Um, and this is when Appetite you know, for Destruction, it, it that was a slow burn. Yeah. You know, Guns N' Roses is just a few months away from releasing Lies, their second release. Yes. And this is when, when this comes out, this is when Welcome to the Jungle, this is when Sweet Child of Mine are just blowing up the world. Yeah. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, a lot of people talk about how Nirvana changed everything. Nope. Guns N' Roses started, you know, to quote Billy Joel, right. yeah. Guns N' Roses started that fire. Yeah, it was the grittiness. It was that. Yeah, look, we've t- we've discussed it before, but yeah, and then of course, yeah, Nirvana kind of blew that out of the water. And then Guns- and then Nirvana comes and makes Guns N' Roses look silly. <laughs> well, exactly because Guns N' Roses were still hair rock, but they were oh, just yeah. gritty, dirty hair rock, and that seemed really refreshing in comparison. But yeah, I suppose what I'm saying is, can you imagine that fretless sound if they'd have put some of that on? Appetite for Destruction, how ridiculous it would seem and how dated it would seem. And that was a year older, a year earlier than than this. And, you know, that's um, the greatest compliment you can give an album, mm. that it doesn't sound dated. Yeah. But you know what? The song, the emotionally charged delivery as well, they do make it stand above um, what this would have been without that, basically. Great harmonies. But I have to say, by this stage, I was starting to struggle. It's like I have to wade through, in my mind, I have oh. to wade through the production and the arrangement to find, like, right, where's Tori in this? Where is she? She's there. I've got her voice. I can find it. Where's the song? And I'm almost imagining what it would be like with her just sitting at the piano playing this. And I'm, I'm going with it, and it's working. And then, oh, guess what? They do that thing, which some bands do. We've talked about this before, where they go, you know, it's the 80s. It's fine to suddenly go Caribbean in the middle, isn't it? Of our songs, like get some steel pans, yeah. That's a, that's a really cool <laughs> thing to do. Like, I think it was Poison or someone who did that on one of the tracks. <laughs> These guys have done it again, and it's like, don't just don't do that. Just please don't do that. So they they go Caribbean with steel pans, and it's horrific. Um, but look, <laughs> but I still love the chorus. I, I see what I, I thought was horrific was that that synthy bass on top of the. It's like. It's like why? Okay, what? I don't yeah. know. So the, I mean, what would be in? Oh no, you know what? Put a pin in that statement. I'm going to bring that back at the end. Let's move on to track three. Oh, you sure? Okay, right. So this is faith spelt with a Y instead of an I. Oh, good. So straight away, I'm like, oh dear, oh dear. Horrible cheese funk guitars. It's like you know the Nile Rogers thing, but but Nile Rogers is is cool when he does it. You know, I know it can. I know you could view it as cheesy, but it's cool. But this is like much more glossy, much more polished, much more sheeny. Really awful, kind of almost Mudak stuff. And you've got fretless chorus slap bass. Oh no, they've started slapping the thing now. It was bad enough when it was just going. Oh, bring in! Look, you got to you got to bring in the funk. If you don't bring in the funk, what are you even doing? And you know what? Of course, the, the drums. Okay, we've been throwing loads of re- loads of gated reverb on on them. Oh no, no, these are not now, drums. These are drum pads. There is no way you cannot convince uh, me. No, these I, are think real drums. Are, I think they are. No, they. I I will bet money that they're real drums. But they're just this. This is what they did. They're just so they've got all the um, what's the word? All the realness squeezed out of them, basically. Yeah. So I think they are drums. But but yeah. But look, it's that. It's that drum sound. You know the one I mean. That oh, yeah, that, that tick, tick, it's, tick yeah. snare. Yeah, I can't do it, but you know what I mean. All of the worst 80s tropes. The only thing they haven't done yet is the only thing they haven't done, <laughs> the orchestra hit. You know, that... They don't and do then, that. They and don't then, do of that. Course, what now you need to do on this track, when you've started it off like that, is you need to have Tori Amos rapping. That's what you definitely need. So that's what they do. And you know what? I'm going, I've written it off and I'm going, this doesn't work. And then I'm going, hang on, 10 seconds later. Oh, hang on. Well, okay. Oh, it does it. And it starts to get a lot better. And then we get to a core to the chorus and it's like, okay, yeah, this is it. This is emotion laden. It's sultry synth pop, amazing, beautiful delivery, good lyrics. And I'm going, okay, I was wrong. I was wrong. And then they just go into this most 
awful middle eight or bridge with terrible backing vocals that you've ever heard. And it's the worst. And it's like, <laughs> oh man, I, I do not stop doing this to me. You're just, you're playing with my emotions here. Like there's such, there's a kernel of what, what Tori Amos became. And I'm really hanging on to that. And when it's when it just presents itself, I'm really into this. But oh man, they make it hard for me to 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 get into it. Um, oh, and then by the way, they go right. You know what we now need? We need. Oh, I think this is the big guitar solo you're talking about. It's like it's the this is the era when like people like Slash and Van Halen were playing on Michael Jackson records, where for a small while sort of metal-ish was um, being fused with mainstream pop and it all kind of seemed like the same thing for about six months or something. And they're doing that. It's like, oh, okay, Slash has just played with Michael Jackson. I don't know the year that was, but you know what I mean. Slash has just played with Michael Jackson, so it's fine. Let's bring it, let's get a heavy metal guitar solo um, on this. It's it's all a bit cheese-tastic, man. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, but the thing is, is that solo is my favorite part of this record. Fair enough. It is a cool solo. But I mean, that's just what I like. I, I, you know, Duncan and I, if you did a Venn diagram of the music we love and listen to, I think we're about 50-50. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. But what I really love that he doesn't, I love those twiddles. <laughs> I mean, I can sit and listen to Steve Vai followed by John Five, followed by Marty Friedman, followed by Animal. I mean, I could just do an entire day of instrumental guitar, just non-stop twiddles for 45 to 90 minutes at a time. I mean, I think, it's fair enough. Yeah, it's fair enough. Occasionally I get the urge, but it's uh, I'm a bit I think if I think if Duncan sat with me and did that, he would probably be shaving his head by the end of it. <laughs> I mean, look, on one level, it's a very cool guitar solo. It's expertly pulled off. And it, However, and, uh, on the next level, it makes no sense in this song. Exactly. Exactly. So anything else on that one? Nope. It's a, it's a song that happened. Okay. So <laughs> next, we've got Fire on the Side. And it oh starts off God. with some actual piano. And it is reminiscent of later Tori okay. Angle stuff. And I'm Hang really... on. We're on track four, right? Yeah. Track four on Tori Amos's first record. Track four. Yep. And we just got to the piano. Exactly. Exactly. That's all I need to say about this song. They were not pushing her as a pianist. They were pushing her as a singer. They probably wanted her to stand up and jump around. Well, and I mean, and if you look at all of the the promotional shots, the videos, everything, the cover, they are pushing her as a sex symbol. Oh, yeah. And even though it was a band, this is why it's a bit confusing in a way. It was a band, but they're just pushing her, aren't they? Clearly. They well, made in, in the band, 80s, that's you know? what they did. Yeah. 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 I mean, that is not that is not germane to just Tori Amos. That sure. is that I mean, that's everybody. I mean, think about think picture any Van Halen video. Yeah, yeah, true. I get, and yeah. You've, you've got David Lee Roth in the front dancing, and then you've got the other dudes in the back. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, they took this, you know, a step further, but Basically, they're trying to turn Tori Amos into the antithesis of what she is on the inside. It seems to be that way. And, and she I, doesn't I have think... the she doesn't have the cachet at that point to fight back. Yeah. And I, I think I think that's probably most of the story. I suspect as well there must be some element of her going along with it and being unsure of uh, not as sure as herself as she, of herself as she later became and probably thinking hey may, maybe I kind of do want to be this pop star but I can sort of subvert that style and do it in well, my own way and, and on I, top I of that there must be some element of that I think I don't think it can of be course, entirely there, that, there is you know or I mean. there isn't but how many I mean I would assume and this just would be for any musician in her position how many mm-hmm. of us would not think to ourselves well Atlantic sold a lot of records over the years Oh yeah, sure, sure. And I'm sure and that, I wonder, I'm sure there was a part of that in her head somewhere. I wonder how many of the songs had been written and sort of performed live in probably slightly different arrangements. Well, definitely slightly different arrangements before the album, or if they had other songs that they'd been working on for a few years that then got scrapped. Because noticing that she wrote, she co-wrote a lot of these. I'm guessing the co co-writers were brought in by the label. So may, maybe this was all new stuff that was like, okay, we've seen what you've done yourselves. It's yeah, it's great, but we want you to write some new stuff that we're going to. It's, gonna work go- it's good, but we know how to make you great. Yeah, 
yeah, I think there's probably a lot of that going on. But yeah, okay, look, so this is a dramatic kind of ballad thing, much like Tory's later stuff, but the trouble is, again, the production just gets in the way. They need to lose the chimes and the big string synths. And if they did that, I think they could have put it on a later record because um, it's a fantastic song. Apparently, she did snippets of it live for many years and once did play it live on, on a tour in um, 2014, I think. Amazing chorus. She goes into that head voice that she hasn't done yet, but that she's very well known for on the later stuff. And it is fantastic. And so this was the first love- time this was the first time that I thought Tori Amos was singing in this band. Right, right. So, yeah, look, it's really sublime when she does that. And it's a very good, very strong song. It's got that darkness and that depth and that deep emotion and that fragility that Tori Amos needs to have, that that her later stuff all is really suffused with. But they can they please stop doing... Right, I said they hadn't used an orchestra hit, and this... I don't think it's quite an orchestra hit, but it's that type of sound. It's like boing, 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 boing. Some strange orchestra hit chime thing. And then they go, what we really need now is, I think it's oboes. They go, we need some woodwind and we need this other thing and we need about 900 different layers. And they're really expertly done, but you don't need all that. Just let the fragility of the song carry it. You don't, like mandolins come in, big string just leave it on the piano there's this lovely melody that comes in but there's about 400 instruments playing it in this is one of those it's one of those classic it's one of those classic times where they don't know where to stop Mm. oh this is like the definition of overproduced correct really is um that's all i got for that one anyway let's move on to pirates oh yeah i'm sure this is something Yeah. Well, she also played this live in 2014, apparently. So she's not completely, she hadn't completely disowned it all, but... um, Yes, mostly. Yeah. So look, it's more... Look, she sent this this record a Christmas card every other other year. Yeah. So it's more brooding, fastish synth pop with some great folk-inspired dark melodies. Great delivery again. But of course, surprise, surprise, it's really overproduced. Strings, bloops and bleeps and clangs and boings and slap bass. And you know what? The chorus is pretty good, but it's not the most memorable song. And there's one of those big rock guitar solos. Yeah, you know, it's floating between the speakers. It's great and it's over dramatic and it's all a bit too much for me and it doesn't really fit the song. And, and you know, I'm, yeah, that's it. Yeah, I mean, that, that that's a great way. We'll, we'll close out. It's not side one this week. It's the right side. So now so we're it gonna... starts with right and then goes left. Okay. That's, that's Hang on, it. maybe I... No, it starts with left and then goes right. Damn it! Okay. So we're I gonna... mean, I'm only assuming that because you normally read from like left to right or whatever. You know? Well, no, you're absolutely right. I just remembered wrong. COVID, COVID. I'm blaming COVID. I'm going to hit myself <laughs> in the head a little bit with my pen. So we close out the left side, flip it over to the right side. This one starts off with Floating City. And for me, I had serious Star Trek vibes on this one. Right. Because it's, there actually is a Star Trek episode about a floating city uh-huh. called, the, called the Cloud Miners. And mm-hmm. it's, lyrically speaking, horribly vapid. Musically speaking, it's terribly overproduced. But vocally performed, it's expert. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, yeah, there's a lot of Depeche Mode coming uh, coming onto this one in terms of influence. I, I actually liked the way this started. I found that the 80s elements were a bit more... Um, a bit more experimental and interesting, some noise stuff going on. It felt a bit more innovative, but then they start to just throw more of the same cheese in. And yeah, you know what? Um, yeah, it's 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 okay. It's nice and brooding and dark, but then it's a bit cheesy as well. And I don't know. I think I was just getting a bit of fatigue at this stage. So I don't know. Yeah, there, there's a lot of fatigue on this album once you get past track two. This is the first song after track two that I can really remember point two and go, oh yeah, I know that one, even though I listened to this record twice in the last day and a half. So uh heart attack at 23. Actually this is I okay. So the fatigue falls off for me. I remember this. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You you go first though, but yeah this one this is one of those you know at this you know at this point she is 26 if memory serves based on what I think so yeah 26 27 maybe yeah yeah past 23 
But you know what? This is the only song on this whole record that deals about with something real. I don't know how many people listening to this or how many people wherever, you know, have dealt with heart attacks with this and that and young people, you know, I have had friends that have had very severe old people maladies in their young lives. Mm -hmm. So this song struck me like that. And if I'm being a hundred percent honest, instead of being 300% overproduced, it's only at about two and a quarter. <laughs> it's doing a quarter, hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Still yeah. overproduced, well, way overproduced, but okay. not as overproduced. Yeah. Okay. Look, this, this was interesting, right? Okay. Straight away. Great title. Heart attack at 23. Really like that. Best title on the album. Um, yes. Some really great piano at the start with just her voice on top of that. And I'm like, yes, do that. Stay with that. Stay with that. It doesn't stay with that. They don't. But for a little while, for like 30 seconds, it's brilliant. And she's delivering the words in a half-spoken fashion, telling a story. And it's like, for that 30 seconds, you're thinking, or I was thinking, this is how it could have been. This is how it should have been. And to be honest, later it was. There's like just that little snapshot there of basically classic later <laughs> era story. It's but then almost course, like <laughs> it's almost like they recorded this out this song without the producers. Yeah. And then the producers showed up and went, "I'll show you." Yeah, and then exactly, then it exactly. Yeah, you can imagine the music video where it's like just them doing it, and then he walks in like in a Superman outfit, like, "Hey, here's what I can do," because um, it just kicks straight in. And you know what? As you say, it's not as over cheesy as some of the others. It reminds me of a less gothic and more poppy 1988 Sisters of Mercy. Interesting to find out actually whether Floodland had already come out or was about to come out at this stage because it's the same year, isn't it? Flood Floodland, I believe. Um, we'll have to check that one, but it's that it sounds a bit like this corrosion by uh Sisters of Mercy, but less less heavy and less gothy, you know. Um, and and Andrew Eldridge will hate me for saying that it's uh gothic because he does not like that word and hates to be described as it but um you know um sorry andrew so um but yeah some cheesy clanks and strings again in places it does lose its impact a bit and the trouble is i'm again i'm getting a bit fatigued again uh, again on this track as it goes through but then kicks in with an amazing chorus it goes double time and it's like blondie punk pop uh, like that power pop type of thing and i don't know do you know what maybe it's not even that great but just in comparison it just broke the monotony and i was like yes yes cool this is cool broke not- the monotony yeah. is the right phrase yeah and it isn't classic Tori amos it's not got that darkness and depth and whatever but it's cool um it's a great poppy punky it's, chorus. it's like listening to classic Tori amos through a keyhole yeah but then, of course, what do we need that we haven't already put on this album, which is an 80s cheese trope? We need a saxophone solo. Oh, yeah, I remember yes. that sax. Yeah, no. Uh, you know, and, and one of the things about a saxophone solo, I'm going to say this and I'm going to ask we move on to the next track because we're, who am I? A yeah. uh, saxophone solo is the greatest thing in the world. However, 10 saxophone solos. Yeah, you know, it, it yeah. became way overused. Roger Waters brought in that sax player on Dark Side of the Moon, and all of a sudden, sax players are on rock records all exactly. the time. I know what you're saying, but look, and what I'm about to say, in a way, sums up the whole album for me. It really is 50% amazingly cool and 50% utterly terrible, and that's that's it for me. So it's it, well, I'll tell you what it is, Nick. It's on the boundary, and that's the title of track eight. Yeah, um, this this whole record is just standing on the boundary. Yeah, and sometimes you fall in the cheese, and sometimes you wash it off. Yeah, and look, this next one's much the same. It's got some Zeppelin esque grooves. Actually, remind me a bit of In Through the Outdoor because you've got Matt Sorum cranking out the Bonham uh, grooves, but you've got these big this big um, synth string hook that's a bit groovy and rhythmic and syncopated and i like it the chorus is really wonderful i really like it but look they just have to add everything and they put an orchestra hit thing on it again and i don't know why they're doing it it's like you know what please just redo this with the piano as the main texture they seem determined to ruin a brilliant song again 
Um, it is a great song, though. And uh, towards the end, it goes like 80s Leonard Cohen combined with just general horribleness. And Hallelujah. Hallelujah, exactly. So there we are. Um, right. Are you, I'm, are you, yeah, you I'm good. No, I'm good. You, you hit it. Okay. Track nine, You Go To My Head, and I've just put, oh, no. There's funk guitars, slap fretless bass, and stupid chime boing-boing synth string things. Yuck. But again, underneath is this cool broody, brooding, broody? Brooding, moody song. Amazing chorus. The delivery is absolutely fantastic. She goes into that head voice. But they just need to hit mute on at least half of these instruments so we can hear the song. I almost spit beer all over my computer. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god you're killing me <laughs> <laughs> and if for some reason i've written I, i'm it must have been getting to me i've, ri- I've written ble- i forgot i wrote this bleep bloop boing groobly doobly chime clank <laughs> so um that's yeah. apparently it was doing that um but underneath it her voice and the melodies and the chords are still there and it's so close to being amazing at times but then they bring the saxophone back again Woo-hoo! please stop Please stop adding everything to everything. This is the worst cake ever. Uh, <laughs> so now we go to the Etienne trilogy. And frankly, I have no recollection of this. Okay. It, it's the, not, the, sorry. This album has two kinds of songs. The two or three that really stick out and you can hear it past the, the 80s awfulness. And yeah. then the rest. Sure. Well, look, yeah, I know what you're saying, to be honest, yeah. Um, but the look, it's called the Etienne Trilogy, the Highlands, Etienne and Skyboat song. So the Highlands is the intro. It's like Clannad-esque, synthy, folky, dramatic stuff, instrumental with big drums. Um, you know what? It's quite cool. And I've written, yeah, quite cool in an Enya type of way. So that's kind of cheesy, but still, still kind of cool. I'm going to go with cool. Um, it's instrumental for a while, carries on with that. Then the piano comes in, which is the start of Etienne, and all else drops out for about 10 seconds. And again, sweet bliss for that time. You know, please leave it like this. But of course, they, they don't put the silly fretless bass over the top. Without the and silly again, fretless bass, do you even have a song? Well, exactly. And look, again, I've put, look, it's half the worst thing ever and half the best thing ever. Because it's, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's so, in so many ways, it's great, but they've just, they really. So it doesn't, ex- it doesn't even exist. Exactly. Well, yeah, it cancels itself out. And then, but the chorus is fantastic um, in spite of the production. Then Skyboat song is a solo bagpipe outro, which is really nice because it's just bagpipes. And yeah, it's folky. Yeah, I did not need those bagpipes. I actually really like bagpipes. Um, So do I, but not, I mean, I I don't, I need bagpipes just. Yeah. yeah. I don't, you know, don't throw bagpipes in things. Well, I wonder, I wonder whose idea it was, because I know um, Tori Amos is quite influenced by Kate Bush um, and Kate Bush has definitely got a penchant for, um, bringing in folky, traditional folk influences on some of her records, especially in the early 80s, I think. She did it on a couple of those albums. So, But it could have come from anywhere. It could have been the producer's idea. I don't know. So, um, you know, maybe they, maybe, they, maybe the producer had watched Star Trek 2 the week before and saw James Doohan playing with bagpipes. Anyway, yeah. you know, you, you nailed this song again. And, you know, my sum up, and I don't know how loud I am because I've blown my nose and my, I can't hear, so... You're all good. I'm sorry if I'm screaming. But this album, when it succeeds, it succeeds in spite of itself. Yeah. When it fails, it fails because of itself. It doesn't fail because of the songs. It fails because of the producers being stuck in an earlier era. If I'm going to say spin it or bin it, it's a bin it. I never want to hear this again. (laughs) What I would like to hear, though, and, I, and the, it's a binet with a condition. Yeah, uh, it's a binet plus, as it were, mm-hmm. because this could ha- the songs, the songs written, and I've said this about other albums, including Metallica Saint Anger. The written songs could have been much better. Yeah, they were they were recorded and produced poorly. I would be really interested to hear her do these songs today as her same here i agree with the majority of that 
Um, and I, 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 I do want to check out, I'm sure there's footage. I hope there's some professional footage even on YouTube of, uh, or wherever of her performing some of these songs on tour in later years. Um, but yeah, look, um, what can I say? Look, on one level, it's amazingly produced, but it's it's the idea behind the production. It's it's the, um, the, the concept and what they were going for and who the demographic and all that. Um, it just feels like they're trying to make this the ultimate 80s pop record. But yeah, A, they're a bit past that era and B, Tori Amos wasn't ever going to be that. He, look, listen to the songs. That even then, they've got more depth to them than that. They don't lend themselves really to this over-the-top '80s cheese synth pop production. They're trying to squeeze a square peg into a round hole, and guess what? It doesn't please anybody. Um, this is basically this. How is this different than Def Leppard doing grunge? Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. It's just the wrong way around because that's normally what the band do when um, they get lost after their style goes off the boil, so to speak. But this was the other way around. This was uh, her being squeezed into a, a style that was going off the boil um, at the start of her career. And then she managed to rise out of that, which is which is brilliant. And I'm very glad that she did. Um, but yeah, you know what? For me, is it spin it or bin it? This is really difficult because I, it's, I it's really tough. do. Yeah, I love a lot of this record enough. <sighs> there, there, are, there are some really wonderful moments on here. The production. But would you want much. to listen to this album again? Would you sit down and spin it again? Would you go to Discogs in a couple of weeks when you get that next pay packet and say, you know what? I'm going to spend those 20 euros on this album. The thing is, I could very much see myself. I wouldn't. I wouldn't spend thirty pound. We don't spend euros, by the way. But um, it, it, but well, um, I'm discogs. I saw it in euros. <laughs> fair enough. No, fair enough. Fair enough. I, th- I thought you got. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wouldn't spend as much as that. But would I spend five pounds on this if it? Oh came, if I no, saw it that is way. not fair. Do I want to hear it again? All right, okay. Do I want to hear it again? Yeah, I think I do. I do want okay. to hear it. There you go. I'm gonna go spin it. Um, look, basically, if you like Tori Amos, which I do, then you'll probably like 50% of it. Like 50%. <laughs> but the thing is, it's not 50, it's not like five songs out of ten. No, it's, it's like half of each song. It's it's literally <laughs> it's it's like the saxophone solo that's happening now. I'm gonna try and la 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 over that, but I really want to hear the vocals and the piano that are underneath it. It's like yeah, we want the we need the remix or re-recorded version of this. But look, there's enough of a core um, there that you can just about get through to by having to brush away all the undergrowth of um, synth pop eighties cheese nonsense. That it, for me, it's worth listening to again that's a lot to brush off that's all i'm gonna say i I agree i i agree i think do you know what it also is nick i've kind of got a soft spot for that sort of 80s cheese and it takes it way too far than than i would normally see i have really grown to have a soft spot for it so i have really grown to appreciate as of the last couple of years new wave you know the fix talking heads and you know all the big ones i'm not you know you know i'm not deep diving but what the eighties becomes after new wave stops being a thing is it becomes a pastiche of new wave. They went, Oh dude, David Burns had some great ideas. Danny Elfman from Oingo Boingo. Yeah, this is great. Let's turn this into pop nonsense. Yes. And that's the middle eighties. Yes. I, I, I agree. It is that I, I, I totally agree. But I, I suppose for me, it's close enough. Like I love that in 19, I think it's 88. Floodland, Sisters of Mercy. No, but the, the Sisters of Mercy. Oh, yeah, sorry. I'm pretty sure that's 88 as well. I love that. And that shares a lot of these um, uh, production tropes. It is cheesy. It's so 80s. It's overblown. But It I is. It, it and is. This, and this is like more ridiculous and totally over the top. But because I do like some of the stuff that is only a couple of degrees of separation away from this, I, I can go with it. Um, so yeah, spin it for me. And that's all I've got to say. All righty, everybody. Thank you for listening to this week. I know it was an odd episode, but I stand behind all of our artistic choices. Unlike the subject, Tori Amos. With Heavy that, metal this week, forever. <laughs> this is Nick for Duncan. 
Thanks, everybody. Catch you next week. Bye.